the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. Welcome back. Monday, January 16th, 2023. I am Seth Liebson, and our phone number is 602-508-0960, As we celebrate Martin Luther King Jr. Day, um, it pains me to see so much commentary getting him king and what he represented so fundamentally wrong. The wrong lessons taught, wrong things remembered. Understanding Reverend King right would be a great solve to this country and her future. But of course, the error of misunderstanding him is exactly why we need that salve. To start, let's please recall he was a reverend. We heard a great deal about Martin Luther King and Dr. King, and yes, he did have a PhD. Remember about 30 years ago, when Dr. Bennett was speaking about Reverend King at Ebenezer Baptist Church, Reverend King's church, his widow, Coretta, was in the audience. And she went up to Dr. Bennett after his speech and said, thank you for speaking of my husband as reverend. That's what he was, and that's how he wanted to be remembered. Indeed, Reverend King said almost exactly that before he was killed. He said, quote, I don't want to be remembered for anything other than as a man who did his best to be a good Christian, close quote. Now, why is this important? For years, we have been told that policy should be divorced from religious concerns, that we should not try to influence public policy with religion or admix anything like the two. But folks, step back and consider, is that right Is that our history, or even the best of our history? First, let me say that every great social and political movement in this country came out of the churches. The man who was first in war, first in peace, and first in the hearts of his countrymen, our first president, George Washington, said in his farewell address, quote, Of all the dispositions and habits which lead to political prosperity, religion and morality are indispensable supports. In vain would that man claim the tribute of patriotism who should labor to subvert these great pillars of human happiness, these firmest props of the duties of men and citizens, close quote. Firmest props. Then think about our movement to end slavery in the 19th century and the civil rights movement of the 20th century. They all came out of the churches. I don't think you can find a speech of Abraham Lincoln's that didn't cite or at least invoke the Bible. Now think of the song on the lips of the Army of the Potomac as they fought the Civil War. They say something called the Battle Hymn of the Republic. It opens thus, Mine eyes have seen the glory of the coming of the Lord. The refrain, His Truth, capital H, keeps marching on. And then there's the beautiful line, As he died to make men holy, we shall die to make men free. No he, no his, 
no emancipation. Same for the civil rights movement in the 1950s and 1960s. It came out of the churches, and it was led by men with names like Reverend Martin Luther King. And who was his lieutenant and best friend? Reverend Ralph Abernathy. And who was the Jewish leader who marched with King and Selma? Rabbi Abraham Joshua Heschel. Pause on Heschel for a moment. He fled Nazi Germany, and when asked why he left New York to march in Selma, he said, quote, You cannot worship God and then look at a human being created by God in God's own image as if he or she were an animal, close quote. If there's a better statement of understanding the Declaration of Independence's clause that all men are created equal, I've not known it. Folks, Reverend King said this, quote, The most important part of church is what you do when you leave the front doors at the end of the sermon. In other words, what do you do with the sermon once you go onto the streets? Don't tell me religion has no place in policy or politics or that we cannot look to our religion to inform our policies. That sentiment would have been wholly strange and alien to not only George Washington, but also Abraham Lincoln and Martin Luther King. And were it true, slavery might never have ended. There might not have been a civil rights movement either. It came out of the churches. That's all point one. Point two. Today's self-appointed legatees of Reverend King have nothing or at least very little in common with Reverend King. Today's so-called civil rights leadership fundamentally misunderstands what Reverend King thought of the founding of this country. The Al Sharptons and Jeremiah Wrights and Ibram X. Kendi's and yes, even the Obamas. They don't understand what King understood about this country. It makes one wonder if they ever fully read a speech of his. Why do I say this? The Sharptons, the Jacksons, Barack Obama, Professor Kendi choke on speaking to the greatness of this country and her founding. They are much happier talking about how this country's founding was racist or how this country is today still racist or how our founding date shouldn't be about liberty and equality, but slavery and misery. When President Obama was asked if he would speak to American exceptionalism, he said America is as exceptional to him as Great Britain is to the British or Greek, Greece is to the Greeks. It's not how King saw it. You cannot find me a speech where he did not praise this country's founding. Sure, he said it had to live up to its founding, but he always said it was a great founding. Here was King at his famous I Have a Dream speech at the March in Washington in 1963. Quote, in a sense, we've come to our nation's capital to cash a check. When the architects of our republic wrote the magnificent words of the Constitution and the Declaration of Independence, they were signing a promissory note to which every American was to fall heir. This note was a promise that all men, yes, black as well as white, would be guaranteed the unalienable rights of life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. Now listen to how he ended his speech. It was the tribute to a country by a man who knew and loved this country. It was a tour of the country he loved, if you will. He said, and this will be the day when all of God's children will be able to sing with new meaning. My country, tis of thee, sweet land of liberty, of thee I sing. Sweet land of liberty. Land where my fathers died, land of the pilgrim's pride, from every mountainside let freedom ring. 
And if America is to be a great nation, he said, this must become true. And so let freedom ring from the prodigious hilltops of New Hampshire. Let freedom ring from the mighty mountains of New York. Let freedom ring from the heightened Alleghenies of Pennsylvania. Let freedom ring from the snow-capped Rockies of Colorado. He went on the tour ending in Mississippi from every mountainside. Let freedom ring. And when this happens... And when we allow freedom to ring, when we let it ring from every village and every hamlet, from every state and every city, he said we will be able to speed up that day when all of God's children, black men and white men, Jews and Gentiles, Protestants and Catholics, will be able to join hands and sing in the words of the old, his words, Negro spiritual, free at last, free at last, thank God Almighty, we are free at last. And please, folks, notice the inclusiveness Jews and Gentiles, Protestants and Catholics, not the vermin that Louis Farrakhan refers to, not the vermin that Al Sharpton led race riots in New York City against. King would not have understood that. While I'm on that point, note too how strongly King felt about Jews in the country of Israel. Jesse Jackson and Al Sharpton and Louis Farrakhan and the CBC and this administration are in the mood to criticize, if not condemn, Israel. Raise up the word apartheid again to describe it as if it were South Africa in the 60s, 70s, or 80s. It is a legacy of the black power movement in the 1960s that put Israel on par with South Africa, and hence the use of the word apartheid all over again. It is a legacy of nationalist and anti-colonialist movements that the PLO, cleverly led by Yasser Arafat and created and funded by the Soviet Union, cobbled together to make Israel a pariah state. Not Martin Luther King. He wanted none of that. In one of his last speeches in 1968, he said, quote, The response of some of the so-called young militants does not represent the position of the vast majority of blacks. I'm going to use the word blacks. That wasn't the word he used, okay? But I prefer to. There are some who are color-consumed and they see a kind of mystique in blackness or in being colored and anything non-colored is condemned. We do not follow that course. Peace for Israel means security, and we must stand with all our might to protect her right to exist, its territorial integrity, and the right to use whatever sea lanes it needs. Israel is one of the great outposts of democracy in the world, and a marvelous example of what can be done, how desert land can be transformed into an oasis of brotherhood and democracy. Peace for Israel means security, and that security must be a reality. That's what he said, folks. Is it not becoming clear that if one wants to pay homage to Reverend King, one has an obligation to actually follow what he said or at a minimum quote him from time to time and accurately and believe in what he said rather than the opposite? He also said, don't let them tell you Zionism doesn't mean Jew. That's exactly what it means. Now, let us take up a moment to think about my third point, which the above sentiment opens up. Today, if you go to a college campus and you walk into a Black Student Center, you will see all kinds of posters in homage to Malcolm X. There's a very famous image of Malcolm X, pictures of him shouting an epithet that has become a banner of our youth and college students today. I'd be surprised if that picture were not in the offices of Jesse Jackson or Al Sharpton or Ibram Kendi. But do you know what you will not see? You will not see two pictures of Martin Luther King and Malcolm X together. They were contemporaries. 
You might think they worked together or did a lot together or that, that there would be a lot of pictures of them together. There are not. There is but one single picture of the two of them together on a stage with King looking mighty unhappy. There's a reason for this. King wanted no picture of them together ever. He wanted nothing to do with Malcolm X's militancy or his Islamacy or his condemnations of America as an evil place. Indeed, don't take my word for it. Listen to Reverend King. In his famous letter from a Birmingham jail, which he wrote to fellow pastors, this is what he wrote. And recall, his letter was addressed to fellow clergymen who thought of and slandered King as an extremist. He wrote this, quote, I stand in the middle of two opposing forces in the Negro community. One is a force of complacency made up in part of blacks who, as a result of long years of oppression, are so drained of self-respect and a sense of somebodyness that they have adjusted to segregation. And in part of a few middle-class blacks who, because of a degree of academic and economic security and because in some ways they profit by segregation, have become insensitive to the problem of the masses. The other force is one of bitterness and hatred, and it comes perilously close to advocating violence. It is expressed in the various black national groups that are springing up across the nation, the largest and best known being Elijah Muhammad's Muslim movement. This movement is made up of people who have lost faith in America, who have absolutely repudiated Christianity, and who have concluded that the white man is an incorrigible devil. Folks, do you know who he's talking about? Elijah Muhammad was the head of the Nation of Islam and Malcolm X's boss. Today, that movement is led by Louis Farrakhan. King condemned all of them, not only because they were anti-Christian, as he said, but because they were violent, because they thought of America and other whites as the devil. Do you think anyone who wears a Malcolm X shirt has any idea of that? You cannot hear King and Malcolm X as the same anymore than you can honor Abraham Lincoln and John Wilkes Booth. Is the same. But it is that legacy of violence and speaking of us as the devil that today's power movement represents, even as they call themselves Christian leaders. King would not understand that at all. I have some more to say, and we'll say it on the other side of this break. I'm Seth Leaps, and we'll be right back. Welcome back to the Seth Leapson Show. I am Seth, 602 I'm making uh, three points about Martin Luther King's holiday and uh, the duty we have to understand him as he understood himself. The final point I want to make is the point about relativism, that there can be no absolute truths beyond our own subjective preferences and opinions, the notion that my truth is more important than the truth. Reverend King wanted nothing of this. And yet today, that is the view that don dominates not only the academy and almost all of social science, but too many religious institutions, I must tell you as well, painfully. Recall, please, that Reverend King loved and continually cited the self-evident truths of the Declaration of Independence. Now listen to this from one of his more famous sermons entitled A Knock at Midnight. He said, quote, it is midnight within the social order. This midnight in man's external collective is paralleled by midnight in his internal individual life. It is midnight within the psychological order. Everywhere, paralyzing fears harrow people by day and haunt them by night. Deep clouds of anxiety and depression are suspended in our mental skies. More people are emotionally disturbed than at any other time in our history. 
The psychopathic wards of our hospitals are crowded, and the most popular psychologists today are the psychoanalysts. Bestsellers in psychology are books such as Man Against Himself, The Neurotic Personality of Our Times, Modern Man in Search of Our Soul. Bestsellers in religion are such books as Peace of Mind and Peace of Soul. The popular clergyman preaches soothing soothing sermons on how to be happy and how to relax. And it's midnight within the moral order, he continued, where at midnight colors lose their distinctiveness. Moral principles have lost their distinctiveness. For modern man, absolute right and wrong are a matter of what the majority is doing. Right and wrong are relative to likes and dislikes and the customs of particular communities. Midnight is the hour when men desperately seek to obey the 11th commandment, thou shalt not get caught. According to the ethic of midnight, the cardinal sin is to be caught and the cardinal virtue is to get by. It is all right to lie, but one must lie with finesse. It is all right to steal if one is dignified or if there is an excuse for it. It is permissible even to hate if one so dresses his hating in the garments of love that hating appears to be loving. The Darwinian concept of the survival of the fittest has been substituted by a philosophy of the survival of the slickest. Universal truths that did not and do not depend on the whims of the day or subjective values is what Reverend King was standing for. That's how he could appeal to the rights of man, the universal freedom and equality that man deserves because he is simply a man. Folks, there is a beautiful, sadly beautiful picture of protesters at Reverend King's last march. The black men there, you can look it up, are carrying signs. They each held a sign in their quiet dignity. And what did those signs say? They didn't say, I'm a black man. They simply said, I am a man. I am a man. A man. Talk about colorblindness. Talk about the dream. Talk about the promise of equality. If we're going to understand Martin Luther King, understand him as he and his followers understood themselves and what they were saying about this founding and living up to it, not destroying it because it was inherently racist or bigoted. You cannot call it magnificent and racist and bigoted at the same time. Now, if you'll let me, I'll conclude with one last reminder. None of this is revisionism. All of this is King in his own words. King as he understood himself on what he was trying to convey and go to his very last speech so that there is no confusion that he changed or anything like that. You will not hear Wright or Sharpton or Farrakhan or Jackson or Kendi speaking of what you will hear is him speaking of America is great. That's what you will hear. I'll see if I can get out. Somewhere I read that the greatness of America is the right to protest for right, he said. And so, just as I say, we aren't going to let dogs or water hoses turn us around. We aren't going to let any injunction turn us around. We need all of you. And you know what's beautiful to me is to see all these ministers of the gospel. It's a beautiful picture. Who is it that is supposed to articulate the longings and aspirations of the people more than the preacher, he asked. Somehow the preacher must have a kind of fire shut up in his bones, and whenever injustice is around, he speaks to it. Somehow the preacher must be an Amos, and saith, When God speaks, who can but prophecy? Let justice roll down like waters, and righteousness like a mighty stream. 
somehow the preacher must say the spirit of the Lord is upon me because he hath anointed me. That was Martin Luther King, a reverend who believed not only in the greatness of America, but the greatness of our founding. Now go tell the folks at the 1619 Project who to study. Welcome back to the Seth Liebson Show. It's a delight to bring back, of course, John Dombrowski, the great John Dombrowski, the happy, upbeat, sunshiny John Dombrowski. There's no rain over his head or his offices. He is the founder and president of Grand Canyon Planning Associates. GrandCanyonPlanning.com is his website, and he has a radio show heard every Saturday morning at 7 a.m. right here called The Word on Wealth. How are you, John? Funny you should say, uh, it is actually right now sunny over my office. Right I, now. Yeah, <laughs> I, I'm like uh, that character in Peanuts with the cloud over yeah. his head all the time. Yes. It, you have you have sunshine, so it was just you know I, maybe it was pig pen. I, I'm all not that good sure, but uh, yeah, that was the dust. Yeah, it yeah, it was man. dust, but the, the rainy enough. cloud for I me. <laughs> I some are born to the moon, and some are born to the sun. Shakespeare says, "You're born to the sun, John." I love having oh, you around. Oh, thank you. Markets were closed today, of course, yes. for the federal holiday. Mm-hmm. Um, but it doesn't mean that there isn't going to be some interesting stuff coming out this week, right? Yeah, I mean, we always have economic news this time of uh, the season, and uh, we've got corporate earnings coming up. We've got a variety of different uh, uh, pieces of information that will be coming out. But what is interesting, there's something in the Wall Street Journal, I think, um, that we saw here, which uh, talked a little bit about inflation. And uh, we are seeing signs, Seth that what the Fed has been doing with raising rates is having an effect. Okay. And it's having a positive effect in the, in respect to what the Fed is trying to accomplish, you know, trying to slow down the economy, trying to cool it off a bit. And it is happening, uh, whether it's in jobs, whether it's in housing, uh, whether it's in um, – um, home, uh, home sales, uh, and we're seeing rental rental prices fall. So a lot of things are happening happening uh, to to show us that there's some positive uh, change that's occurring, which could lead to the thought the Fed may be um, considering slowing down on those those rate hikes. Okay, all right. And that's why I guess when you look at the markets, I just want let me just say, yeah. year to date, the uh, Dow Jones Industrial Average is up over three percent. The uh, S&P is up over 4, and the NASDAQ, which got hurt the worst last year, is up almost 6% year-to-date just in the first two weeks of trading. So there is seemingly a consensus coming around um, that inflation is easing, right? That is uh, that is the uh, consensus, yes. And uh, let's see. And there but are, they're also saying not to you know get caught up in that. That you know there's still a possibility that things could, yeah. could change. <laughs> yes. Uh, Jack Kemp used to say – if you line up 100 economists, what do you get? Yeah. 100 economists. 100. Yes, exactly. <laughs> right. right. So there is that. Unemployment is going to continue to kind of stick a little bit, though, isn't it? The unemployment steadies. I mean, the rate is mm-hmm. stable for now, but there does still seem to be a problem with people wanting to get enough workers, right? Yeah, I would still say that, uh, you know, in those higher, uh, you know, specific job specific, uh, you know, certain areas of the economy in tech and so forth like that, we're seeing a lot of individuals being laid off. But there is also the rumor out there that many of the people who are being laid off are finding jobs. Okay. Uh, as well, if they want to, 
Uh, That's still, my concern. That yeah. that little par- parenthetical right. there. If, if they, they want, want to. to, we have a real right. problem with that. We we really do, Seth, and it's it still hasn't been fixed. No, I mean, there's there's <laughs> no. no question. If you go out to a restaurant, if you go to to go shopping somewhere for whether it's clothing or food or whatever. There are definitely shortages out there of people, and there are shortages out there of uh, people, skilled people. If you go to, say, even like a a Home Depot, as an example, uh, years ago, it was easier to find people uh, that can help you with a question. Today, it's, you know, you've got younger people, which is fine. But they're not, uh, you know, they don't have the same knowledge base yeah. as that that other person who used to work there. Yeah, that's an education issue as well as a workplace yeah. issue, as well as a workforce issue. And yeah. that's going to be a challenge, yep. uh, you know, I think for quite some time. Yep. And I'm hoping that we can get this resolved. But it's it takes training, as you said. Yeah. It's going to be and you know experience. A, ref- a, a new focus on what we do in education too. I think elementary it, oh, and secondary. Gosh, we absolutely. really need to retrain on that stuff. The stuff that made us so good and so great, and be mm-hmm. able to have nice things yep. it's the stuff we don't teach anymore you that's know? right I, mean, I i hope that we it's going to change but yeah. uh i don't see it for the for the in the not, short, not short soon period. but we'll keep talking about it and banging the drum maybe uh, somebody will listen like one hopes <laughs> i mean that's why we do this right yeah, one hopes right. that uh if someone can't do something about it they know someone who can yeah. but uh you know vocational and technical training you know stem stuff it's yeah. And I, it's I the would, arsenal of our democracy, or was. And I would say, Seth, again, right now it's critical that people who are investing for their financial yep. future to yep. uh, make sure they're getting good advice, good guidance. That is and, a guarantee. The future will come. Mm-hmm. And if they would like uh, to sit down and talk with me, they can certainly reach out to me. Go to our website, grandcanyonplanning.com, and you can request an appointment right there. Securities and advisory services offered through Creative One Securities LLC, a member of Finra and Sipic, and an investment advisor, Grand Canyon Planning Associates LLC, and Creative One Securities LLC are not affiliated. You really are the best, John. Thank, Thank you, you, sir. Thank you, Seth. You betcha. Bye-bye. We'll talk soon. Welcome back to the Seth Liebson Show. If you are concerned with stock market volatility, what if I could offer you an investment in a portfolio with a high fixed rate of return that's not correlated to the stock market? It's a portfolio where you can turn your monthly income on or off, compound it, whatever you like, with no loss of principal if you need your money back at any time. This is a secure, collateralized portfolio that delivers a high fixed interest rate, up to 10.25%, 10.25%. Why Refi is a due diligence approved firm, and you can check them out at investyrefi.com. That's invest, the letter Y, then refy.com, or give them a call at 888-YREFI-34. 888-YREFI-34. They're based locally. You can talk with them, meet with them. You won't get a sales pitch. They leave that to Larry Elder and me. They just like talking about what they're doing, and um, very proud of it. I was reading uh, yesterday, Was I was starting a new biography of um, Abraham Lincoln, and it dawned on me as I was talking in the first segments here of the show about Martin Luther King and our duty to understand people outside of what historicists do to them, understanding people as they understood themselves. What did they mean? What did they mean? Not what does someone born decades later or centuries later want them to have meant what did they mean when they spoke what did they stand for what did they represent with the times they were in it seems to me that's that's our duty and yeah i've you know there's i don't know if 
how many people have had more books or biographies written about them than Abraham Lincoln, but I am astounded every time I read one. I always pick up something new and different, if it's a good one. And it just seems to me that, you know, maybe with the passage of time, if we can stand up against these trends in the modern academy to take us to something like 1619 or to change these really, really good curricula that have been around and are available. Who was it I was talking to last week? I'm trying to recall on the show we were talking about um, about about you know the, the the new efforts in our curriculum and, and in history and we were talking about what the 1619 project represents is such a departure from how we teach American history that so much of what they tell us we don't know we did know those of us that took American history seriously knew all about the stuff that the people at 1619 were telling us we didn't know. It's just nonsense. It's so much nonsense that if you studied America seriously by serious scholars um, that we grew up with, Samuel Elliott Morrison, Henry Cominger, uh, these people, Daniel Borston, they had the American history textbooks for decades in our schools. And if you go and even go online and look at their indexes, you will see... There is no sanitizing. There is no whitewashing of American history in those books. It is a myth that there was. But neither did they invent things. Neither did they invent or overemphasize things that were rightly placed in their context. The, the point I guess I'm trying to make is so much distortion over Martin Luther King. Steve Hayward um, has an interesting thing up at Powerline. He says, today, academic history is going through something of an identity crisis with the number of undergraduate majors in the discipline plummeting while its academic practitioners descend further into esoteric or narrow investigations that have little appeal or importance. One sign of the identity crisis can be seen in the fact that Harvard classifies history as a social science while Yale places history in the humanities. Another clue comes from the curious fact about biographies of major historical figures. Biography, by the way, I'll just say, used to be one of the great ways to learn history. The general reading public can't buy enough biographies. Think about it. Biographies especially of presidents and figures from the American foundering, but also generals and major business leaders. They've not only rocketed to the top of the bestsellers list, but even spawned Broadway musicals. And yet very few of them are written by academic historians anymore, unlike the 1950s and 1960s when leading academics like Arthur Schlesinger and Arthur Link and James McGregor Burns would produce multi-volume works on presidents. American historians today still write a lot about presidents, but usually confine them to narrow aspects rather than a complete biography. Titles like President X and Civil Rights or President Y and Latin American Policy. Instead, today, best-selling biographies tend to be written by journalists or non-academic writers like Ron Chernow and uh, James Grant. Uh, there's David McCullough. Who did I hear was on with Adam Carolla last Friday was so good talking about American history. Uh, I'm blanking on his name. Great, great novelist who does novels and American history. I'll think of it in just a moment. Sorry, I, I had a brain bubble there. I'll think about it. There are some exceptions. Uh, 
there's a great academic new book out on – Brad Meltzer is who I was thinking of. Brad Meltzer. Folks, I, I, you know, the Adam Carolla show is, you know, not everyone's taste and not always rated G, but not always rated PG-13 either. Not always rated R. <laughs> so go in with certain cautions. But if you do go and look at it from your uh, podcasting platform or even if you follow it somewhere else, Brad Meltzer is, is just an amazing, an amazing historian. And that interview is, I think, you know, just one of the best. One of the, he tells a beautiful story. He tells a beautiful story about uh, something he wasn't allowed to talk about until recently. But we have our likes and dislikes, obviously, about President George H.W. Bush. He wasn't everyone's kind of Republican, and he may not have had the most successful presidency. But those who knew him, I wasn't one of them, I didn't know him, but those who knew him said they knew few people with whom patriotism beat in his heart more so, his love of this country, and that he would cry about it. And when he was on his deathbed, they brought in, the family brought in some of his favorite favorite authors to read to him while he was semi-comatose. And Brad Meltzer was one of them and was reading to him about the American founding. And when he read the literal words of the Declaration of Independence, Bush awoke. Bush awoke. And Meltzer said, would you like me to continue reading? He said a tear formed in his eyes, the former presidents, and said, yes, yes. Hell of a story I didn't know. It took place, what, about probably four or five years ago when Bush passed. But that's, that's, that's what a deep and beautiful and accurate rendering can do. It can stir the soul. And I worry too much about what we're doing to our schools and our students and about this great country and maybe in part why it's lost some of its sheen, its shine, and its greatness. Robertson Davies, a novelist from Canada, once said, Beware the dampers and cynics. There's too much dampening and too much cynicism. Too much iconoclasm. Do you know that word, iconoclasm? Destroyer of statues. Statues. There are good statues and monuments to this country, and it seems to me our duty is to tell their story in the fullness of their story because it's usually, you're going to find out, when not distorted, maybe the second greatest story ever told. What we've done to it is a crime. Anyway, sorry to go off on that. Just a thought. I'm Seth, and I'll be right back. Just can't be in a bad mood when you hear a Dolly Parton, can you? I want to get into the Biden story, the Biden document story. Uh, we'll talk to Brandon Weikert later in the show about some of his thoughts on it because he knows classified intel and daily briefings so well. But I, I want to get into the politics of what's going on with this. Our friends at Issues and Insights write that Joe Biden seems to be in a bit of trouble. The man who said that Donald Trump was totally irresponsible for keeping classified documents at his Florida state now has his own document gate dragging him down. But his defenders respond, that's okay. at least you're not Trump. Are there any offenses that never Trumpers and Democrats say Trump has committed that Biden hasn't also perpetrated or done worse? The stumbling Biden whose presidency seems to be an effort in trying to manage and maybe direct Some of our decline has apparently left a trail of unsecured classified documents, some so sensitive they were declared top secret. 
Reports say they've been found at his think tank and in his garage of his Delaware residence in an adjacent room. The news comes less than four months after Biden incredulously wondered how it could possibly happen that classified documents were found on Donald Trump's personal property. How, one, how anyone could be that responsible, Biden said, and he thought, what data was in there that may compromise sources and methods? Did he know at that point that he was guilty of the same? Most likely. He simply assumed, as so many arrogant politicians do, that he'd never be caught in a tangled web of hypocrisy. Yet there he stands. We should find interesting but not surprising that Trump's attackers, both those who are supposedly of the same party as he is, and of course those of the other side, had a great joyride last summer and fall when classified documents were discovered at Mar-a-Lago. But now what? Now what? Despite the screeching from Biden's political and media garden guardians that the big guy is less blameworthy than Big Orange, the facts show that what Trump has been accused of almost on any front, Biden also has been guilty of. And in some cases, much worse. And that is the continuing curiosity to me as to why now the media seems to be so up in arms. That is what is so curious. We never quite got used to, though we understood the double standard we operated under, that there was not equal justice under law. If you were R or a D and you committed a crime that had in any way a political implication, the treatment was different. As I say, we didn't get used to it, but we at least knew those were the game rules going in. Why has this changed? Why is it different this time? I'd love your thoughts on it. Take a top of the hour news break, but do call in. It's your uh, it's your hour next. Six zero two five zero eight zero nine six zero. Anything on your mind? Fair game. Six zero two five zero eight zero nine six zero. But I'd love to know why you think this time is different. Three-star general, Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person person for donald trump to hire i find out the worst enemy that i'm going to face in my life is right here in america they took my assessment and they wanted me to change it i was like i'm not changing it they had to get rid of flynn with in-depth interviews archival footage and never before seen personal record to the man behind the headlines i just felt like i was drowning flynn deliver the truth whatever the cost available now watch it today go to salemnow.com salemnow.com